Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. A couple weeks ago, my buddy uh, Jason and I, he's our student minister here, we got this hankering to go kayaking. We haven't done that in a little while and wanted to go kayaking. Both of us are big kayakers. And, uh, and uh, we haven't kayaked in a while because, or on, mainly on account of the fact that there's been no water, all right? And you need water to kayak. But we decided to go. And we went down Two Rivers Park, or Two Rivers right there. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Oh, right by the big bridge there going into Little Rock. And uh, we get across the water there. And, and uh, no sooner do we cross the water than Jason goes to cast his fishing pole, you know, and just snaps the pole in half. He just, he just snaps it. And he looks back at me and I go, what do you do that for? And uh, he said, I, I don't know. I didn't mean to. And so I was like, okay, fine. So I start to paddle away from him, but then I turn my boat towards him. He's, he's sitting beside me and then he falls in. He just, he was just sitting there. There are no waves in this area, no sharks, no um, onboards or nothing. Just, I mean, he just fell in. And so he stands up in the water there and he looks at me and I go, what'd you do that for? And he goes, I don't know. I just fell, you know, and that, and that sometimes happens to people. So I paddle over to him and we, we recover his uh, water bottle and his hat and I'm holding it there for him. And he looks at me and he goes, I lost my phone. And I said, you did not. And he said, I did. And I was like, oh man. And he's like, he's looking under the seat and all that kind of stuff. We all full know the phone is down there somewhere, you know, but, but like I said, Jason was standing in it. So it's not that deep at all. And so, and I mean that just by, if anybody was standing, <laughs> I did not mean that because he's unusually short, but he is. So anyhow, we were, we were sitting there and I'm like, did you find it yet? And he's like, no. And he's all shuffling around there in the water. And, and so um, it's starting to get dark. The sun is setting. And I look at him and I was like, man, I'm going to have to get in and help you, aren't I? And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, it's fine. And so I was like, man, it gets dark. I'm calling his phone to try to make it light up down there, you know, and stuff like that. That's not working. And so um, I take off my shoes, I give him my shoes, I give him my phone and my water and all that kind of stuff. And, and I jump off and I stand there and I kid you not, I'm standing there like this, holding on to my boat. And I, I step over just like that. That's all I did. And I step on his phone. And I was like, dude, I found your phone. And he's like, no, you didn't. And I said, yes, I did. I think so. Or there's a square thing down here. And uh, I can feel it. I don't know what it is, you know? And, and so he comes around to me and he looks at me and he says, uh, how are we going to get it? And I said, I'm not, you are, you know? <laughs> and he's like, well, how are we going to do it? I said, I don't know, just go down my leg. <laughs> it's right there is what it said. And so so it's like, I thought about like, you know, getting my toes and bringing it up, but there's, there's no way I'm getting my foot up here. So, um, so he, he's like, I'm not doing that. And I was like, all right. So he just goes down and he feels around and found his phone. And how he lost his phone, my point, how he lost his phone is not unusual. If you fall into the river, the river hates you. She will take something from you every time. Well, mark that down. If you've never gone kayaking, that's rule number one. The river hates you. The, and so she's going to take something from you. And she took his phone. That's normal. That makes sense. All right. 
What was odd, and I still can't believe it, is that in this river, I just step on his phone. I just, I just easily found his phone. This story in 2 Kings 22 is about them finding something. How they found it was not unusual. It's not. They were doing a renovation project and there it is. But all week long, I keep asking myself this question. How did you lose it in the first place? I mean, if I was alive at that time, I would have looked at them and went, why did you do that? How could you possibly have lost this thing? That's what we're going to look at. And my hope this morning is when we unpack this text, put it back together and apply it to our lives, that we would guard against losing the very same thing that we would be very careful not to lose the same thing. And if we have, if you have, if I have here this morning, we will find it again. Let's pray together. And then we will uh, look at verse 18 through 20. God, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for how you have encouraged us and, and blessed us by your word. God, I pray that our hearts would be open. Our minds would be receptive, that we would be um, tenderhearted to your word, that we would be humble to whom you are, and that, God, we would personally and publicly own your word in our lives, in every setting, in the world we live in, in our, in our schools, in our workplaces, God, in our families, in our neighborhoods, that your word would become alive and active in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So this will finish out our Kings series, Kings and Kingdom series. This is the end of season two. And uh, there's only about three more Kings in the book. We're not gonna look at those, but essentially the Southern Kingdom falls to Babylon. Last week, the Northern Kingdom fell to Assyria or was conquered by them. Josiah is the name of the king in this part. He's a young king and he's, and he's the king of, like I said, Judah or the Southern Kingdom. At some point in his young career, or his young reign, he, um, becomes a little bit more religious, begins to take his religion, Yahweh worship, seriously. And he instructs some people to begin to rebuild the temple. It's a common thing that the good kings throughout First and Second Kings do and a common thing that the bad kings forsake. So in that renovation project, some of the people doing the renovations find what they call the book of the law. They call it that twice, at least in our text, the book of the law, and they read it. Some of the people read it, and I'll get back to that just in a moment. But they read it, and then they've discovered, decide that this is pretty serious stuff. This is pretty weighty and serious stuff. We need to take this to the king. So they take it to Josiah. Josiah reads it, and he is uh, messed up by that book. Like he's all worried about it and kind of distraught over the message that's included in the book there. And so he takes it to Hulda, who is a female uh, prophet, which I find uh, fascinating given the culture that we live in, even in the Baptist culture and that sort of stuff that um, this king during the time of Isaiah and Habakkuk, um, him and the priests sought out a female, a female prophetess who then taught and explained the word of God to these men of authority, all right? That's not the point of the sermon, but it's a good thing to remember. As they are doing this, she responds in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 18 through 20. And this is her response. She says, say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, that's what he read and heard and got all messed up about, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke, 
It's what God spoke. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I will indeed gather you to your ancestors and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place. The very first thing that I would ask as we're reading this text is, what is it that bothered him? What, what, what book did they find and what was the message in it that really bothered him? You can see that as she is responding back to the people that came to ask her on behalf of the king. It says, as for the words that you have heard, what were those words? Now, we do not know, quite honestly, we do not know for certain which book it is that they found. But most scholars believe that it was Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy are at least large portions of Deuteronomy that they had discovered there in the temple, which is the reason. It's the fifth book of the Bible. It's the fifth book of what we call the Pentateuch. It was written by Moses, one of the most influential leaders of all of Israeli history. And that's what drives me to this question. How did y'all lose that in the first place? How do you lose Deuteronomy? How is that something that you lose? It's supposed to be in the temple. And at some point they decide that they have lost it. This would be like us waking up tomorrow and the front page of the New York Times says the United States Constitution is missing. Nobody can find it. An intern took it to this room and then can't find it after that. We've asked Nicholas Cage. He doesn't know where it is. <laughs> Nobody knows where the United States Constitution is. And then everybody just going on about their business. Like, how do you lose something like that? Massively important to their religion, to their history, and to their culture. And the reason that I'm really making a big deal about this is because I don't think we make as big a deal of Deuteronomy as we should, all right? First of all, the name is just odd for us to say, but if I was to say in a room like this, and even online, if we were to ask you to drop it in the comments, what are your favorites? What is your favorite book of the Bible? I would even imagine that in a room like this, we could, uh, we could acquire 10 books of the Bible, and not one of them would be Deuteronomy, all right? A lot of you would say John or Matthew or Mark, maybe first, second, third John, the beginning of Joshua, not the ending because it's kind of uh, detailed, stuff like that. Genesis 1 through 11 is really great. Exodus is really great story. Psalms, Proverbs, these would be the ones that we would list. I don't think anybody would list Deuteronomy, right? Am I right? Am I wrong? Anybody say, no, Deuteronomy is my very favorite. <laughs> all right, good. I was right. Here's what the CSB study Bible says about Deuteronomy. Catch this part. Next to the books of Psalms and Isaiah, the New Testament alludes to Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. This is true not only in the term of the sheer number of instances, but especially in the passages where theological truth seems to be most at issue. Jesus and the apostles considered Deuteronomy of paramount importance to their teachings about God and his dealings with the chosen people and humanity in general or at large. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy in his response to each of Satan's three temptations in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is massively important. How did they lose it? They just lost Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has really um, a, an interesting style to it. It is a couple of sermons by Moses and it is written um, in the way that a treaty would be written. 
The way that it's written is written in the way that a king, let's say that a king conquers a land and he is writing a letter to the people of that land and saying this, twofold message. If you do what I say you should do, then, the, then it will go very well for you. Not only will I not be mean to you and I'm powerful in this situation, but I will ensure that things go well for you that you will thrive, that you will flourish in this land. But, these treaties often said, but if you do not, then it's not going to go well for you and you will lose your land, the land that you are living, and you will lose your life. That makes sense that a king would say that sort of thing to a, a nation that he conquers. That is essentially the message of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written in that way and it says that same idea over and over. Choose blessings, not curses. Choose life, not death. Do what I tell you to do and it will go well. It says this in good and in bad ways. Here's one of the positive ways that it says it. Deuteronomy 32, 46 through 47 says, take to heart all these words I am giving you as a warning to you today so that you may command your children to follow all the words of the law carefully. For they are not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. And by them, you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Deuteronomy is this warning message to the people of Israel. It is a warning shot that lets them know the good way to live and the consequences of living a bad way. Now, if you follow me on social media, if we're connected on social media, or you've been paying attention to the news, then you know the very good news that came out this last week, right? That Menifee cannot write speeding tickets um, for one whole year. Did y'all hear this? Did y'all hear this? It's very good. And all God's people said, amen. Um, apparently Arkansas steps into Menifee and says, you guys are writing an exorbitant number of speeding tickets. And all the people in this region go, duh. Like, have y'all not driven through there? In fact, if I need to go to that part of the state, if I'm going to Fort Smith or, or Northwest Arkansas, I'm supposed to, according to Google, Going through Menifee is faster, but I always go right, go up Salem, hit the highway, and then go that way because I do not want another ticket, all right? And so I avoid Menifee. What was so shocking to me about this article um, that I read about it, which was sent to me by several of you, um, is that there were seven, one officer gave 771 citations in this period of time, and another officer gave 263 citations in a town of 308. That's how many citations that they gave. That's not so shocking to me because I have no idea how many is like a lot or how many is a little. Seems like a lot, but I don't, I don't have any clue. What was shocking to me is that it said that no officer, not just these two, but no officer in the same period of time gave a warning. Not one single warning in that whole time frame, all right? Not one warning. Now, let me be very clear about this because we have law enforcement in our church and I respect and appreciate the law enforcement. It is not required that law enforcement give warnings. And for the record, the ticket that I got was well earned, all right? So um, even if they were giving out warnings in that town, I did not deserve one for this, the number that was on the dash and the number that was on the sign. All right, I, don't, I didn't deserve that. However, we would all assume that at some point that an officer who gives no warnings, have 700, no warnings, lacks grace and compassion, right? That's how we would assume it. And again, they don't have to, but it just seems like they could. They could give some grace and some compassion in that situation. That's the way that we would see that situation. Therefore, let me ask you this. How much more gracious and compassionate is a God 
who writes down the warning and then waits 500 years to make the people pay the consequences. A lot of times people will read the Old Testament and think, this God is mean. This God is vengeful and he's, and he's judgment and he's wrath. And, and I'm telling you, then you're just not reading the Old Testament or maybe you're not seeing the time frame that the Old Testament covers. It is over 500 years since God gave the warning of Deuteronomy. If you do what I tell you to do, I will make sure that you thrive and flourish. All of my strength will be for your good. But if you do not, you will lose the land and you will lose your life. That time has come. It turns out that the people do not listen to the warning. Over and over and over again, they do not listen to the warning. And Josiah takes this personally. This is why he goes to Huldah. This is why they go to the prophetess and ask her, what's the deal? Is this true? How do we, how do we live in this space? How do we come out of this space? How do we realize what Deuteronomy is saying and then apply that to our lives in a way that saves us from this sort of wrath? It reminded me of the times when you're a new parent, whether you are um, the parent of a human child or the owner of a dog, either way, um, when you are one of those kind of stages of life. I remember we had a puppy and we left him in the house. His name was Zwingli. If you're a Bible nerd or a Baptist nerd, you'll figure that out later. But Zwingli and um, Zwingli ate an entire bottle, brand new bottle, cotton and all of uh, Mucinex. Uh, he just ate the entire thing. And it scared us to death because this was our little puppy, you know, and we called poison control. We did all that sort of stuff to try to figure out if, if he was going to die and if we would be prosecuted, you know? And so we had to figure this out and they were just pretty much like, I don't know, is he throwing up? And he wasn't, he was fine. That dog ate half of our wall one time and he is fine. That dog is no longer with us um, because of eating stuff like that. I'm sure he's still alive. He's just not in my house. And so, um, I'm telling you, there's this moment where you see the warnings and you are gripped with fear. And so you run to the help. That's what is happening in this text. That's what she's doing. That's what her response is. But what's so amazing to me as we read this is that God doesn't focus on the warnings of Deuteronomy. Although those are there. He says, yeah, that's gonna happen. You're gonna lose the land. You're gonna lose your life. But the focus of what he tells Hulda to say back to him is all on Josiah's response, not on what God is about to do. Look at this in this section. It says, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself, you have torn your clothes and wept before me. He's referring back to God through Hulda. He's referring back to verse 11, where it says that he read that he ripped his clothes and he began to weep. It is a sign, a common declaration of brokenness in their lives at this point. That's what he's doing. He's, he, his heart is grieved and is sorrowful, sorrowful. There are three descriptors of this. First of all, it's that tender word there. It says that his heart was tender. It means that his heart, his perception of the word of God was receptive. It was welcoming. It begs us the question, how do you perceive the word of God? Do you welcome it? Do you respond to it saying, this is the authority. This is what is right. This is what is wrong. This will tell me what is truth. Do you welcome the word of God or do you sift through the word of God? Are you the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong about scriptures? Or do you welcome the Bible into your lives? Which he does. And secondly, it says that his heart was humbled. This isn't his view on the scripture. This is his view on himself, which is particularly amazing in that he is an actual king. 
All right, he has a throne room and a palace and he has, he has guards and gardens and a crown on his head and he still approaches God as a humble person. We don't have enough money to make our bills meet month to month and we still approach God as if we could demand that he do what we tell him to do. He's tender towards the word of God, receives it as right, as true, humble, accurately seeing who he is in light of God. And then it says again that he tore his clothes and wept. It means he was broken hearted. The application there is really this, that he received it both personally and publicly. That he took this word and he said, you know, this is right and, and I'm going to own this. I'm not going to shift the blame. See, our, since the garden, our response to being called out on our sin or being called out on what we do is to shift. We want to blame someone else. We want to stand there in the garden and say, God, it was that woman that you gave me, right? It was so-and-so. It was them. It was my circumstances, all this sort of stuff. A biblical response to the word of God to being confronted on when we don't measure up is, you're right. I was wrong and I'm broken by it. There's a humility there. There's an ownership this. What all this looks like is this isn't just something that he read, not just something that he believed, but it's something that changed his actions. One of the problems with modern Christianity, one of the problems with the majority of people that attend churches is not that we don't know what the Bible says. We know what it says. We even know what we're supposed to do. We just don't do it. We just don't care. It flat says, love your enemies, love people that would kill you. And we look right at that and right at whomever cuts us off on the highway and don't care. We don't care about that at all. I really don't know why that is. I can't psychoanalyze it for everybody. I just know that it is. That we're not sacrificial, that we're not gracious, that we're not kind, that we don't bite our tongue and be kind to other people. I don't know why that is, but we don't. He did. It was tender, welcoming of the spirit, uh, welcoming of the word, humble before God, owned it personally. Jesus tells a very similar story in Mark. Jesus told a story about um, seed, uh, like, uh, like, like um, I don't know, corn seed or grass seed. I don't know, I don't grow things. Um, and even though I don't grow things, and you probably, most of you don't grow things, we can really relate to this story. He tells us this idea about this soil. And then if you were to throw the seed, you think about a farmer who has a bag of seed and he, he takes a handful of seed. And if you were to throw that out on the rocky hard soil, it's not gonna grow. You, don't, you maybe don't know why that is, but you just know that it is. And that on the soil that is tilled up and broken up and, and, and watered, then it will grow. That makes sense to us just naturally because we've observed things, because we've mowed yards, because we've seen the desert. That makes sense to us. And Jesus says that the word, that Jesus comes um, giving the word of God to people and to the hearts that are receptive, broken up and watered by the spirit, they receive it and they grow. And the ones that are cut off from it do not. The good soil uh, hears the word and welcomes it. Those are Jesus's exact words. John Piper said this about that text. So set your minds to be open to the word of God. Even if it is new or demanding, this doesn't mean listening uncritically to the preacher. Jesus didn't want mindless acquiescence, neither does the preacher. The admonition is this, when the word of scripture stands forth plainly, then welcome it. Have a receptive attitude, not a resistant one. Love the word of God, be like a miser in search of gold and silver, snatch up the word of God as 
precious pearls. Be like the black Minnesota farmland, deeply plowed, free of thorns, free of rocks, moist from the rain of the Spirit, and then receive the power-packed seed of the Word of God. And this church will overflow with fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. May the Lord destroy the work of the devil and make us a fruitful people by his word. This acceptance, this humility, this change, this ownership is what we call repentance. It's a change in direction when God confronts us. And so that's what Josiah does. The word of God is very plain. Josiah responds through repentance. And then the next part is God's reward. One of the things I'm very careful of as a preacher as a teacher of the Bible, is that we have to guard against the way that we love formulas. We really like that. And I don't know why it is that we like that so much, but we do. We'll read the Bible and we'll say, God says this, they did this, and then God blessed them. Therefore, if I do exactly what they do, then God will bless me, right? We put God in like a formulaic pattern that he has to fulfill what we think he has to fulfill. And to be honest with you, scripture's kind of split on that, all right? There are times that he does, there are times that he doesn't, okay? That's just the reality of God being omnipotent and in charge and sovereign. However, that being said, this always happens. When the word of God is plainly taught, when people read the word of God or see what God says, in other words, what I'm trying to say is when we fully understand or at least begin to understand what God expects of us and we repent with humility and accept him, he always rewards that, always, every time. Look at this, it says right here, bunch of words in peace, all right? Essentially what the text was saying there is then you will live and you will die in peace and the next life will be in peace. Peace is a huge theme in the Bible. Peace ought to be a theme in the Bible. Why? Because it is such a desire that we all have from our first breath to our last, we desire real and true peace. That if you look around our lives, look around your life, there's so much of it that is not at peace. So much of it is unrest and turmoil. And even if there is peace, it's really, really fragile. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like at home or in your uh, roommate situation, at work, that sort of thing, there can be a moment, there can be a day where you believe everybody is getting along. Everybody loves one another in this family, right? And it's happy and it's good and all that kind of stuff. The next afternoon, you can all hate each other, right? That ha- it's so fragile. And, and even when you think about it it, it, it comes down to like somebody took the trash out wrong or something like that. And it just broke apart the, the peace in our house. Somebody left pizza on the counter and all of a sudden that fragile peace just breaks apart. We can see that all over our world. Like you read the news, you see the news, and it feels like there is never a moment in which we are not at peace with one another, that we are not in some sort of conflict and pain. The media profits on that. They actually stir it up, make us mad at one another in order to make money. And listen, it's not only on the outside through the media and in our nation, in our community, in our, in our dorm room, in our homes, in our families. It's also like deep within us. You know, because when we're honest with each other, when we're honest with ourselves, we live in this constant, this constant space of unrest where we look around us and we're like, my life is good, but I don't feel good. 
It's like the inside of me doesn't match the outside of me. Like, like my heart is upset, but my mind knows differently that people show me love and acceptance and I still feel so very isolated. And there's all of this lack of order and this disharmony within us. And we crave, we desperately want inside peace and outside peace. We want things to be in order and to be true. We see unrest all over. And yet the way that we use the word peace is not exactly the way that scripture uses the word peace. It's deeper, it's more complex than just the way that we use it. Typically what we will say is peace means the absence of conflict. It means you're not fighting. But you know, and I know, that that's not all we crave, right? Like in our homes, it's not just that I want to be um, at peace, like it's not just that I wanna not fight with my spouse, I want to be my spouse lover, right? And that's deeper, that's different. That's positive. It's not just the absence of the negative, but it's positive. It's not just that I, I don't want my children and I to butt heads. It's that I want them to be in a safe space where they can thrive and grow and question and, and, and strengthen and, 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 and be vulnerable. I want to establish all of that because that's not just the absence of the negative. That's the infusion of the positive. At work, we don't want it just to where our boss isn't angry with us or a coworker isn't, coworker isn't um, cross-eyed at us. We want to actually be like, like gelling and, and humming and, harmon, and harmonizing together in such a way that we're getting stuff done. We're conquering to-do lists. It's like, it's good, it's vibrant. That's what we want. That's what scripture defines or describes as peace. That's peace where there's order and there's unity and everything is together on the inside. I want things to line up and to be orderly and that when things go bad, I can still be strong and all that sort of stuff. I want to have peace on the inside and not just what I portray on the outside. That's what scripture offers. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about shalom or when it talks about peace blessedness like in Psalms 1 or blessedness like in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. This is what it's been offering all since the beginning is that this idea of peace. And so God gives Josiah that. He gives him peace because he had, he received the word, he humbled himself and he owned it. Look, here's another complexity or a deeper shade of biblical peace that we don't often accept is that it is not the absence of conflict. Peace happens, God's peace happens in conflict or in trouble or in pain or challenges or circumstances that don't measure up to the way that we want them to measure up. And I can prove that. God tells Josiah through Huldah, he says, and you will live and you will be gathered to your ancestors in peace. Isn't that such like an old fashioned way to say, and you will die, all right? That's, that's what he says. He says, you will be gathered to your ancestors in peace. A few years later, Josiah is killed in battle by Pharaoh Necho, all right? Which I think is a totally cool name and easy to remember. Pharaoh Necho kills Josiah in battle. That's not the absence of conflict, that's a battle. And he dies in it, but he dies in order in the right standing, in the order with God. He died so long, he lived his life in peace so long as he was repentant, accepting of the word, humble in his position and accepting of it. Listen, we as Christians should be people of peace. We should be that way because of what Jesus did. 
Paul Chapel says, because of the empty tomb, we have peace. Because of his resurrection, we can have peace during even the most troubling of times because we know he's in control of all that happens in the world. God's peace is rested in who God is and what he says. That's the point. Josiah was given peace as he accepted God at his word. So here's the application. Here's where you put feet to this. The first one is this. Have you responded to the clear teaching of the Bible this way? The story of the Bible is much like the story of Deuteronomy, that if you will submit to God as our king, our true king, if you will submit to Jesus Christ as the king, then it will go well with you. Not only will it go well with you, he will use his entire strength to bless you, to cause you to thrive in the true biblical sense of the word thriving. Not only in this life, but in the next Have you welcomed that message? Have you humbled yourself and accepted the reality that you have messed up, owned that? It's like tearing of the clothes. Have you owned that in such a way that you have removed your crown and laid it at the feet of the real true king? Because remember, this is an actual bona fide king that responds this way. How much more can you? If you grew up in church or ever been around a Christian, this is what we call getting saved It's what we call submitting to Jesus, believing, that sort of thing. Have you done that? Have you done that? And why not? Why haven't you done that? You should do that right now. That makes logical sense. You should do that this moment. The other thing is this. All week I've been been thinking about how much the tearing of clothes in that it was personal and it was public is similar to baptism in that it is personal and that it is public. That we stand in those waters and we own it. We say, yeah, I messed up. I am messed up. I am broken far beyond what I can fix. But Jesus, I accept him. I tenderheartedly accept him. I humble myself before Jesus and now I show it. And so that's my second question. Have you been baptized? Have you stood and publicly, personally made that sort of declaration? The same way a king before his whole nation would rip his robe and pray before God. Have you been baptized? So those are individual things. Have you accepted Christ? Have you been baptized? The other thing that I would say is that we as Christians, we as a church, need to swim in the waters of repentance. Repentance is not the gateway into Christianity. It is Christianity. That every day, all day, all the time, we are confronted by what scripture says in a loving and a gracious way by our good and our heavenly father. And he says, this is where you are not living the way that I created you to live. And we welcome that because he's the authority. I'm not the authority. And I humble myself to be changed by that. And I own it. I change my actions. I do what he says. We live in that sort of repentance over and over and over again, being made more and more in the image of the son, being made more and more like God. And then I would finally say, do you value the word of God? Do you tenderheartedly accept it? Do you have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. Read your Bible. All the time, read your Bible. You know, not all the time, like all, that's all you do. Read your Bible regularly. Every morning I read my Bible. You should read your Bible regularly. Read your Bible, bring your Bible to church, open your Bible, study your Bible with us, and then apply the Bible to your life. Do we tenderheartedly welcome that? Do we? Do we actually welcome that? This just popped in my head, but I read a story this week about, mm, I can't remember his name. 
Um, but he was a, he was a, he's a famous atheist. Anyways, he taught a whole, he was teaching a lecture and he said something to the effect of, how many of you believe the word of God is true? It was at a freshman class at a university and every single person raised their hand. It was in the South. And they, they all raised their hand. And he said, um, awesome. How many of you have read, I think he said the Da Vinci Code and every one of them raised their hand. And he said, how many of you have read the Bible all the way through? And very few of them raised their hand. I think if we did the same experiment here today, it might be similar. You either believe it or you don't. If you believe it, you'll read it. I began the sermon by asking you this question or really just asking out loud. I don't know who I'm asking. How could you possibly lose Deuteronomy, right? I mean, and I don't know if you've got a great answer for that or not, but like, it's just one of those questions that doesn't answer it. How could they lose Deuteronomy? The more I thought about that, the more I came to this conclusion and follow me here on this. I'm not trying to conflict with the scripture, but just follow me on this. I don't think they lost it the way that we would think of losing. They didn't lose it. In fact, remember where they found it? It was in the temple. You know where it's supposed to be? In the temple, all right? It's where it was supposed to be. In one way of speaking, they didn't lose it. It didn't sprout legs and walk off. No jokester hid it in the closet. It wasn't lost. The reality was it wasn't valued. It was set off to the side and forgotten for hundreds of years. It just sat over there. Nobody paid attention to it. His father, the king, didn't care about it. His grandfather, the king, didn't care about it. The one before that did. But for two, for two kings, they didn't care. It wasn't lost in the sense that it was lost to antiquity. It was lost in the sense that they did not value it. And in that very same way, I would say this to you and to me, we are very much in danger of losing the Bible. That we have it, it just sits over there. We know where to get it. We could grab it if we want to, we just don't know what it says. We haven't applied it to our lives. We haven't humbled ourselves and accepted it. My challenge for you this morning is that we would move it back front and center. We would read it, be confronted by it and change. It's in Jesus' power and strength that I hope that we would. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.